Yale Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed Index quarterly journal edited by Yale medical, graduate, and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the fields of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focus topic, and in this series, we're taking you through the past, present, and future of clocks and cycles. Our July episode is devoted to YJBM's issue on clocks and cycles, which was just published last June, and you can find this issue on YJBM's website or on PubMed. I'm Amelia Hallworth, a second-year graduate student in microbiology. And I'm Lisa Ogawa-McLean, and I am a fifth-year student in molecular biophysics and biochemistry. Um, today, we are interviewing Dr. Adam Silver, an associate professor of biology at the University of Hartford. In addition to his work on the immune system and the circadian clock that we will talk about today, he also works on the gut microbiome. So Dr. Silver, can you please uh, give a brief introduction of the circadian clock and the immune system as they pertain to your research? Oh, I'd be happy to. Thank you for having me today. Thank uh, you for coming. Uh, so the master circadian clock is located in the suprachiasmatic nucleus of the hypothalamus of the brain. Uh, it regulates nearly all aspects of our physiology and behavior, which oscillate over the course of a 24-hour period. Now, the clock regulates uh, activities of the organismal, uh, so like the sleep-wake cycle, the cellular, so for example, the recruitment of cells, and at the molecular levels, like gene expression. Uh, so since we're more likely to encounter pathogens during the day when we're active, uh, we initially were interested in determining if certain aspects of our immune system fluctuated over the daily cycle. So is our immune system at its peak when we're active and potentially more likely to encounter pathogens? So in theory, we don't need our immune response at its peak when we're sleeping. So this would be kind of a waste of energy and could potentially inhibit tissue repair. So currently, uh, I've been interested in the other end of the spectrum. So how do pathogens or even microbes in general alter our clock? So is this why we feel tired when we're sick? So does the recognition of pathogens impact the clock, which is closely tied to the sleep-wake cycle? So uh, is it true then that the light is the main driver of the circadian clock? That's what regulates the the circadian rhythm, the clock cycle? So it is. So the master clock is entrained by exogenous cues. And like you said, light is, is the, the biggest one. Uh, however, other environmental stimuli can align the clock, um, such as temperature, food, uh, even exercise. So the master clock then regulates peripheral oscillators throughout the body. So that can be found in various organs, tissues, as well as cells. And then this synchronization or... You could think of it like um, talk to the periphery is mediated through various neural and hormonal signals. So if, if those external signals like light and temperature aren't changing, but then when you get sick, uh, the pathogens are altering the clock, even though those signals aren't changing, I guess possibly the pathogens may be acting further downstream. Is that what you're finding? Um, that's, a, that's a great question. And I would say right now we don't know. So that would be something that I'd be interested in would be to determine those molecular mechanisms of how that is actually happening. Okay. Um, so other than that, what are currently some of the bigger intriguing questions in your field? Kind of like I mentioned uh, just now would be looking at some of those molecular mechanisms. So we know that various immune parameters uh, fluctuate over the 24-hour period. However, really more work needs to be done to determine those molecular mechanisms. Um, 
I think it'd be very important to determine the clock's influence on the adaptive immune response as well. And then if you take kind of both of these points and put them together, I think they'll enhance the field of chronotherapeutics. So time delivery of drugs and vaccines in order to develop maximum efficacy. And I think um, ultimately that's where I, I would like to see the, the research field go. Uh, to kind of personalize medicine, which takes into account an individual's circadian rhythm. So really briefly on the topic of um, drugs targeting the circadian rhythm, are there known diseases that are associated with, I guess, the the clock genes? So interestingly, in 2014, uh, there was a paper that revealed that oscillating genes were associated with nearly every major disease that was funded by the NIH. So diseases like cancer, Alzheimer's disease, schizophrenia, uh, Down syndrome, obesity, uh, were most strongly associated with circadian genes. And uh, they go on to reveal that 56 of the top 100 best-selling drugs in the U.S. target the product of a circadian gene. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, are there any drugs that currently target the the uh, clock genes specifically? Specific in? clock gene, not just ones that oscillate. That I'm I'm not sure on. Okay. Um, okay. So, how did you get to where you are, and how did your research interests develop um, in, into studying the immune system and the circadian rhythm? Um, a long story. I'll try to <laughs> keep it short. Um, but I kind of consider myself a jack-of-all-trades, master of nothing. Um, so as a graduate student, or I could say I consider myself a, a microbiologist at heart, even though right now I, I study circadian rhythms and uh, the immune response. So as a graduate student, I studied the ben beneficial symbiosis between Aeromonas veroni and the medicinal leech, so really bacteria-host interactions. And... Um, I was in the laboratory of Dr. Yor Graf at the University of Connecticut. And uh, after my PhD work, I wanted to continue bacteria-host interactions. Uh, but I thought it would be really cool, living in Connecticut, I'm from Connecticut, uh, to study tick bacteria interactions. And then who better to work with than Yale's own Dr. Errol Fickrig. Um, so I actually started on a project in his lab for the first six months of my tenure there, looking at tick salivary gland proteins that could help facilitate Borrelia, the causative agent of Lyme disease, getting into the mammalian host. Um, and then during that time, another postdoc in the lab who actually did his PhD work on circadian rhythms, um, he got some really cool preliminary data. And then he actually took a job uh, in Spain. He was from Spain, so he left. And Errol approached me and said, hey, Adam, do you, do you want to take over this project? And even though it was totally out of my comfort zone, um, I thought it was too great of an opportunity and just too cool of research to pass up. And for a while, I really struggled because imagine I was kind of on my own in the lab because I was surrounded by microbiologists or immunologists, and no one really knew anything about circadian rhythms. So for a while, I really felt like I was on an island. I mean, my lab mates were great and trying to help me as most they could and help me with the immunology piece. Um, but it wasn't until I found some collaborators uh, in other labs here at Yale that were really able to, um, to help me. Um, 
you know, where I am now, uh, I'm in a small, really undergraduate institution that focuses on teaching. And I kind of took that route because as a graduate student, I really enjoyed my interactions with, with the undergraduates uh, when I was teaching labs. And I always kind of kept that in the back of my head. And um, uh, I've been there six years now. How many um, students do you have in your lab currently? Um, so because they're undergraduates and I have uh, quite a bit of turnover, it fluctuates um, anywhere from two to five, say. Okay. And I try to stagger them so I can have more senior students training the newer students on various projects. So I guess while we're on the topic of your postdoc, while you're at your postdoc, you published a couple of very cool papers that came out in 2012. Uh, so in the first one, you showed that there were clock genes that were being expressed in a rhythmic way in various immune cells. So which immune cells were you studying, and were there reasons you picked those, and what do they do? Um, so we looked at splenic macrophages, dendritic cells, and B cells. And these have various roles. Um, uh, for example, macrophages are best known for regulating inflammation and host defense. Uh, dendritic cells for their work as antigen-presenting cells, and B cells for antibody secretion. Um, so really kind of cells that were involved in both the innate and adaptive uh, immune responses. Um, and, you know, why? Uh, just some of the major, major cell types that are found in the spleen. Okay. Um, and I guess sort of looking back at this, it seems like you would expect every cell in your body would know what time it is. Uh, but at the time, that seems like it was kind of a surprising result. Um, so why was that so surprising, and has, has something changed since then to make this seem less uh, less surprising over time? Yeah, I think that's you're, – you're exactly right, the way you, you asked that question. Um, because I think 10 years ago, it, it was kind of surprising, as we, we knew that some immune parameters fluctuated over the 24-hour period, um, and then at that point, right about 10 years ago, we were uncovering more and more immune parameters fluctuating over the, over the, the daily cycle. Um, but even look, but like you said, looking back on that now, I, I still think it's interesting that we have those three different cell types we looked at. And if you look, they're on slightly different time, so to speak. And what I think is so cool, you have different cell types in the spleen on right, slightly different time. And also they, um, their absolute numbers and relative cell numbers can also fluctuate throughout the day. Um, and then, so you have individual cells in the spleen on their own time, and then the spleen is a whole, say, tissue. All those individual cells make up the timing of the spleen. Um, and do you know if that pertains to their functional role in the immune response? Um, I think it, it definitely contributes, but to what extent, it's not quite known just yet. Okay. Well, in, in another paper, you showed that um, uh, toll-like receptor 9 expression is controlled by their circadian clock. So you look specifically, you found that this toll-like receptor um, had this circadian uh, rhythm. So first, what are the toll-like receptors um, and what role do they play in our immune response? So toll-like receptors are a class of pattern recognition receptor located in or on the surfaces of certain immune cells. 
uh, that identify pathogen-associated molecular patterns, also referred to as PAMPs, and some researchers in the field refer to those as MAMPs, or microbial-associated molecular patterns. Um, so these are conserved microbial components that are exclusive to microorganisms. So as an example, things like bacterial DNA or viral DNA, uh, bacterial LPS or flagellin, so things that are unique to microorganisms. And to date, 10 human TLRs have been identified, 12 mouse TLRs have been identified. And imagine each of these TLRs recognizes and binds to a specific microbial ligand. And then this binding uh, will usually induce uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines and kind of establish an antimicrobial state. And in addition to this, uh, it'll initiate uh, uh, or help direct the adaptive immune response as well. So uh, what is recognized by toll-like receptor 9? What is the ligand? Uh, DNA. DNA. Uh, so Both specifically, by bacterial and viral, or the what are called CPG DNA motifs. Mm -hmm. So to stimulate synthetic, uh, to stimulate TLR nine, we use a think like a synthetic nucleotide. So what would I guess we talked about this a little bit earlier, but what is the functional relevance for the circadian rhythm and TLR receptor expression? You mentioned you probably wouldn't want to have your immune response activated too much at night, but how much of a role would this does this play? So if we're looking at um, like TLR uh, expression itself, um, so imagine if mRNA levels fluctuate over the 24-hour period, it would right, suggest that, say, responsiveness of these toll-like receptors also fluctuates over a 24-hour period, making them more likely to uh, pick up those microbes, uh, have heightened responsiveness at certain times of day compared to others when, um, you know, we are more likely to encounter those pathogens. And to just sort of give people a sense of the scale, how much is this fluctuating? Is it like nothing to 100 or somewhere in the middle of that? Oh, that's a, that's, that's a great question. Um, so a friend of mine who helped develop a statistical program that detects the cycling of genes, you know, uh, essentially told me one time over coffee that you, you can set this so low that you can detect cycling in vine, very minimal amounts of gene expression, very small differences. Mm -hmm. And you could almost argue that maybe every gene is cycling if... if um, if looking at right those small differences, mm -hmm. um, but honestly, it, it's going to depend on say which TLR or which gene we're looking at. Um, there'll be um, larger differences in amplitude during the cycling. We could say. Okay. So then, do all the toll-like receptors uh, cycle, or are there some that aren't oscillating at all, even when you're looking at small changes? So um, it, it's going to depend in the cell type we're looking at. And then so a lot of the work I've done recently, so again, I, I work at a smaller, uh, predominantly undergraduate institution, and I don't have a tremendous amount of funding, funding. So the questions I can ask are going to be smaller scale. So recently I've looked at mRNA expression levels. But in an ideal scenario, I look at mRNA expression 
followed up by protein levels to see if protein levels also oscillate in circadian fashion. And then follow that up with looking at responsiveness over the course of a 24 or even 48-hour period. And then do we see cycling? Because imagine, um, just because we don't see circadian variations at the mRNA level doesn't mean we won't see them at the protein level or responsiveness. Because sometimes your post-transcriptional regulation could be done in a circadian fashion. So there are multiple levels of complexity at play here. And so there are known proteins that have sort of that post-transcriptional regulation. Correct. But so the big thing is, at least, you know, what I can show is, do we see at least daily variations in responsiveness? So if we see daily variations in mRNA expression and then couple that with um, daily changes or variations in responsiveness, then we can say, okay, this gene um, is most likely under control by the circadian clock. And then you could really dive into the molecular mechanisms there, like we did in the, the TLR9 paper. So I guess if you're looking at the TLRs that seem to be like the most circadian controlled and the ones that seem to be the least circadian controlled, are there any like functional differences that jump out at you? in terms of, I guess, what they're doing in the immune system and what they might be recognizing? We, we, like you said, we had the paper on TLR9. We went into a good amount of detail on that. Some of my recent work is looking at the TLRs as a whole. Um, but kind of dialing it back several years now, some of the preliminary data that my colleague came up with was actually dealing with uh, TLR3 mm-hmm. and its role in West Nile virus. And he actually had some really cool data that shows that in mice, mice are more susceptible to West Nile virus infection at certain times of day compared to another, and really had some initial data that kind of linked that with TLR3, as TLR3 does play a role in West Nile recognition. So like big picture, big scale TLR work, I think that would be um, kind of the, the next cool thing that's out there. And so I guess then even bigger picture, are any of these receptors potential uh, drug targets for sort of stimulating the um, innate or, uh, yeah, innate immune response? So are there any drugs that currently target them or is there any, like, is the field sort of looking at that at this point? Yeah, so researchers are, are always trying to find new adjuvants out there. So things that are going to boost uh, vaccine efficacy and um, I know uh, some studies out there that have used TLR agonists to try to enhance vaccine efficacy, for example. I know um, they've used the TLR9 ligand in um, an anti-tumor vaccine in a vaccine against melanoma, actually. So are any of these in clinical tri- in the clinical trial stage, or is that I all still preclinical? So. I believe so. Okay. Cool. That's very cool. Like this has potential to do all kinds of stuff. Just as you mentioned, the circadian clock is impacting basically all the diseases. So as we had mentioned earlier, uh, we talked about the pathogen molecules feeding back and regulating the circadian clock. So just sort of evolutionarily big picture, why might it be important for the circadian clock to be affected by the presence or absence of microbes? Um, so really, I, I to be quite honest, I think this is just right speculation, almost uh, anecdotal. 
Um, but perhaps from the pathogen's point of view, if you disturb the clock, it will essentially weaken the host, which might confer a survival advantage for the organism. Um, or flipping that, um, it, it could be our body's way of forcing us to rest, repair tissue damage when we're sick, right? Maybe this is why we feel tired when we're sick. Um, our body recognizes a pathogen that triggers our molecular clock, is kind of telling us to slow down um, to, like I said, kind of repair that tissue damage. But to really understand this and to get at this, I think we really need to work out those molecular mechanisms. Okay, so this has been nagging at me a little bit. So if um, the immune system is controlled by the circadian rhythm, we know that there are some areas um, that see more or less light uh, during a 24-hour period. So like in Alaska and Canada, they have some really long days during part of the year. Um, and then in other parts of the year, they're really short. Do we know and can you speculate maybe on how this affects the immune system? Or is because the circadian rhythm is uh, regulated by the light, maybe they see no ill effects from having the shorter or longer days? So, right, circadian rhythms influence nearly all aspects of physiology and behavior. Um, so, to so to disrupt those rhythms or alter those rhythms can lead to serious short-term and long-term pathologies, such as depression or impaired immune function. Um, both of those have been shown. Um, you know, but with that being said, um, circadian rhythms will still exist in the absence of an external cue. Uh, however. The, your rhythms will slowly start to get out of sync. So we really rely on sunlight to kind of reset our clock every day, um, think to keep us on time, so to speak. Um, so there are measures actually that can be taken by individuals living in, um, you know, uh, Alaska or say Canada, like you mentioned, um, by using artificial light, like um, light, light boxes early in the morning can help kind of reset your clock and keep it on time. Um, I always think it's, uh, I think back to this, but I was studying this when both my kids were born and, you know, imagine I'm in the hospital with my wife and we're like, okay, we, we need to get at least one decent night's sleep when we're here. Mm -hmm. And we send the kids off to the nursery and the nursery's in constant light. <laughs> so we're kind of getting their circadian rhythms off to a terrible start. <laughs> You know, and I could even think uh, I'm a native New Englander, you know, in late January, February, it feels like weeks where you just don't see the sun and um, it starts to be a drag, you know, so seasonal depression is a thing and it, it's tied into the sun, it's tied into our circadian rhythms. Also, I noticed then like phones now have sort of the blue light yeah. filter. So I think that's <laughs> wonderful. So that helps us maybe not, I don't know, trigger um the, the wake period when we're maybe like scrolling through our phones at night. It's, I know, it, it's so funny. But that's, that's what they say is that um, how we live nowadays with TV and working late and constant light and your computer being on, it really screws up our rhythms. You know, in me, like I'll even think if I go into the refrigerator in the middle of the night, like, oh, my goodness, what did I just do? But our body has mechanisms in place to make it so we're not that sensitive but I, I always laugh how when I was studying these things, I would perform, you know, 24 hours straight experiments or 36 hours. And um, 
I'm thinking, oh, wow, I'm showing how important our circadian rhythms are, <laughs> and I'm destroying my own. Yeah, exactly. I, I feel like we've also been seeing in the news a lot more about how night shift work can have a oh. negative effect on our health. And so, so yeah, so that's really, that's funny that it, you're noticing it as you were um, working through the night. <laughs> and, and there are measures, with night shift work, there are measures you can do, but it, it's very challenging. You essentially have to train your body like it. it it's a complete flip cycle, like uh, draw your shades and pretend like it's uh, it's day when it's really night. So today we've mostly been talking about human and mouse circadian clocks. Um, so what other organisms have circadian clocks and what differences are there between these kind of clocks? Um, like do ticks have a circadian clock that might affect whether or not you get Lyme disease? Uh, <laughs> so I'll... I'll answer the first part of that question to start. So virtually uh, all forms of life, including bacteria, fungi, plants, uh, drosophilus, or fruit flies, fish, mice, and obviously humans exhibit circadian rhythms. Um, I think it's pretty wild that even single-celled organisms, right, like bacteria, which reproduce many times over the course of a 24-hour period, experience circadian rhythms. Uh, for example, cyanobacteria express daily rhythms in photosynthesis. But imagine, like, their entire lifespan is, like, 20 minutes, right? So why would they experience um, circadian rhythms? Um, so I think it, it fits into the, the notion of bacteria being treated like a multicellular organism due to quorum sensing, right? So cell communication. But that's probably a topic for another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we'll have to invite you back if we ever get around to talking about that. But but actually, that's so that's actually one of the things I'm interested in. And, um, you know, now that I have tenure at a, a smaller institution, I feel like I can tackle some of the questions that I'm interested in and can wander off a little bit. Um, so like I said, my, my PhD work was looking at the beneficial symbiosis between a microorganism and the medicinal leech. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to take that system and bring in my circadian rhythm work. So how does the, does the leech undergo circadian rhythms? Um, I have some anecdotal evidence that it does from some of my former lab mates that noticed things, mm -hmm. um, like higher bacterial numbers present in the digestive tract of the leech at one time of day compared to another. Um, but then um, going back and seeing how bacteria could impact the leech's circadian rhythms, how the leech's circadian rhythms impact the bacteria in the digestive tract of the leech, and then we could apply that um, to our own gut microbes. That would be very cool. Um, and I know it's it's been a couple years since I've been following the circadian clock literature. Other than cyanobacteria, do you know if they found circadian clocks in other bacteria, like particularly pathogens? It would make a lot of sense for them to be able to tell, like, is the immune system going to be ready for me or not? So that was something that really was our initial hypothesis was, especially being in Errol's lab um, and all the vector-borne diseases that we worked with, um, you know, was there a manipulation between the microorganism and the vector mm -hmm. where it would manipulate the vector to bite us at the time when our immune system was at its lowest in order to enhance um, infection? Or conversely, did our immune system evolve to peak when those encounters might occur? Um, 
I'm trying to think of, I feel like I know of some protozoa that uh, experience some types of, uh, of rhythms, um, but examples of bacteria off the top of my head, I, I can't think of any. Well, one of the most, arguably maybe one of the most um, Im, uh, important bacteria to, to humans and other uh, animals is the mitochondria and, and our um, uh, endosymbiotic relationship with our mitochondria. Has anyone looked at whether the mitochondria show or mitochondrial uh, gene expression shows any sort of circadian rhythm or in immune cells or other cells of the body? I don't know offhand. Um... I, I would, I would think someone has in, in, in a, um, and it would be a friend of mine who was actually was a postdoc here, who who did a transcriptome analysis, of, um, many different tissue types. I don't know. I don't think they looked at mitochondria. I'm sorry, I'm trying to go through the Rolodex in my head. Uh, I don't know, but yeah, that's really yeah, interesting. That really Especially right, then well. you could write tight in, I don't know if you said with chloroplasts and cyanobacteria, yeah, yeah, right? exactly. If listeners wanted to learn more about this topic, what resources might you recommend? Um, so I don't know if it's okay to plug my own work here, but, <laughs> uh, but they can start by reading the, uh, the short review article that's set to be published in the June issue of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine. Uh, so in that review, uh, it was actually three undergraduates and I reviewed the field of the circadian immune connection really from the past five years. So really just a, a little snapshot. Uh, but really in that article, we cite some really excellent reviews from some huge names in the field of circadian biology and the immune response. Um, so they could start with our review and then look at some of those, I think, um, more comprehensive kind of bigger picture reviews that we cite. I think would be would be a great place to start. And we are open access, so anyone is uh, free to access this review article. <laughs> yes. um, and then finally, do you have any practical advice for listeners, especially potentially young aspiring researchers, maybe uh, are starting to think about joining a lab? Um, I think in terms of joining a lab, um, I think try to get a few rotations under your belt to see what you really like. And I think looking back on my time, um, when it came time to make a career decision, I think, or how should I say, um, think about where you want to end up. And if it's in industry, I would really try to learn as many techniques as possible. So I did apply to some industry jobs, and I feel like having um, experience doing many different types of techniques really got me those, those interviews. Um, at the end of the day, I wanted to um, work at a smaller research institution where teaching was also a focus. And in hindsight, I wish I had more real teaching experience. Um, so I know potentially go out to even a community college and see if you can adjunct at night to really see what it's like to be a professor and have your own class. And that'll help you uh, tremendously in your first year, as well as getting an interview because I've been on um, a few search committees, and, and that really makes a difference. Thank you for that great advice, uh, and thank you for being on our podcast today. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been great. Um, listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. 
Join us next month for a second podcast on clocks and cycles, where we will be interviewing Dr. Xiaoyang Yang, who works on the interaction between the circadian clock and the metabolism. And thank you to the Yale School of Medicine for being a home for YJBM and the podcast. Thank you to the Yale Broadcast Center for help with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast. Thank you to the YJBM editorial board, especially the deputy editors for this issue, Ian and Devin. And for more information on YJBM and our podcast, please visit medicine.yale.edu slash YJBM. Be sure to check out our journal by searching Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine at pubmed.com. We'd love your feedback and questions, so feel free to tell us your thoughts by emailing us at ygbm at yale.edu. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share the podcast and read us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts and Spotify. See you next month for the next installment of the YJBM podcast.